0: So as I look at most of our church, I know that many of us have different backgrounds that we come from. We have different cultural backgrounds. Our parents immigrated here from different countries. Um, And one of the things I think is interesting is when you look at different cultures, different cultures think other cultures don't understand them. I don't know if that's Uh, something that happens in the culture that you're you're from. I know I grew up in Ukraine. My parents grew up in Ukraine. I came over here when I was four years old. And one of the things uh, that we constantly, as I was growing up, my mother would make a statement, well, Americans don't understand where we're coming from on this. Um, And I'm sure that some of your grandparents, your great-grandparents, those that came from another country um, and another cultural background, they would stress that Many times, other cultures don't understand theirs. So there'll be sayings that you make, you you know, you'll say in in your culture, and another culture will just look at it, kind of go, I get it, but don't. Uh, In fact, you know, we we actually used to, um, my dad used to tell me this statement in Russian. It's a pretty good, uh, wise statement, uh, but it kind of comes from a, a communistic mentality, if you will. The statement was, if you can't, we'll teach you. If you won't, we'll make you. So, you know, there, there's, there are these, these cultural things that we are brought up with that many times the translation is lost when we bring it to another language completely. And I believe what happens in the church is we read the Bible through a, many of us, a King James Elizabethan English, thou shalt, you know, we read it with that kind of language, and we miss the fact that the original authors were Jewish. They had a Jewish mindset. So this morning, as we kind of you know, follow along in our path on discipleship and why we believe here as a church, it's important. I'm going to ask the question, what is your mindset? What is your mindset? You see, most of us don't realize that when we read the Bible, we're reading it from a Western culture. What we don't realize is most of the writers were Jewish and they're not thinking the way we are. In fact, um, you as a parent would probably agree, your, your children probably don't see things the way you do many times. You have to correct them, right? Is, is there something that sometimes kind of, wait, wait a second, why did you think I meant that? Wait a second, I didn't mean that. Here's what I, I, I spelt it out for you, where did you get that you didn't need to take the trash out? Where? You see, we're, we're, we're humored by that because we understand what it, means, what, what it means when we say something, but for some reason our children don't understand, and they don't get it. And I think sometimes God actually views it the same way with us. We have the word written for us. It's written by Jewish authors and an Israel, God, and we read it from a Western culture. And when we read it from a Western culture, God goes, no, that's not what I meant, um, I would like for you to think that it's about you, but it's really not about you here. This is about my nation Israel in Jeremiah, believer. For I know the thoughts that I have for you. That's to Israel. And sadly what happens is a lot of American Christianity boils down to me reading the Bible for myself. Because one of the reasons we have a huge difference between the Jewish people and the Western civilization is that we tend to think individualistically. The Jewish people thought community. So I want us to start thinking through as a church, what are ways that we've kind of been doing things backwards, if you will. You see, in America, we're all about individual rights, right? I mean, that's kind of the reason we, 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 we stress the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Yet, in the church, particularly in the early church, it was about community. It does not mean the individual is not responsible. It does not mean that God will not deal with each of us individually. It means that community is what God is ultimately after. In fact, when God blessed Abraham, he told them that he was going to be a father of what? Many nations. So there's more than just Abraham that was at stake in that promise. There were many nations that were going to be affected by what God blessed Abraham with. So this morning, just to kind of review one of the the verses we start off with, Jesus makes this statement to his disciples, and I think we need to take our cue from what Jesus says here, and then we're going to take a look at the Hebraic thought and the, if you will, Hellenistic or Western thought that most of us are familiar with. He says this, he says, Then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Last week we spoke about the importance of making disciples, and that we are part of a commission, meaning we are to work together to make disciples. This isn't a, a secret recon, Navy SEAL, go get them for the Lord. This is a mission where we are partnered together to reach people with the gospel. And, and, and I want to encourage you, believer, if you're not partnering with somebody else and reaching someone with the gospel, then you're not understanding the gospel, if you are not excited that someone else reached somebody for Christ, there's a problem with you, not with them. And we as a church need to become more passionate about seeing lost souls saved than we need to be more passionate about us getting our way. We need to become more community-oriented, not consumer-oriented. It's not just about us. There's a greater mission at stake. In fact, you were given the gospel so you can give the gospel to someone else. It wasn't for you to hoard and say, I've got something special I can't tell you about it. You were given the gospel to share it with someone else. A disciple, in, its, in the most practical manner, is a student or apprentice of someone they desire to emulate. Last week we talked about the importance of following Christ as a model, for us to be students or apprentices of Christ. We never know as much or more than Christ. Do we agree? Jesus knew more. We'll always know more. We still have plenty to learn from him. In fact, unlike outlearning those that have taught us, There is always more that we can learn from him. There's always more. We mentioned the fact that Jesus himself grew in wisdom and in stature and went through the Jewish schooling of his day. To the Jewish mind, knowledge that has the most power comes from the scripture. Jesus was unique as a rabbi because he didn't wait for his followers. He actually went after them. He found them. He went out and told his disciples to follow him, and he would make them fishers of men. He told them the mission right up front... And finished by repeating the same mission before he left. I don't know if you realize that. He gave the mission right up front. And then as he was leaving, he reiterated that same mission. Go and make disciples. So he just bookended everything that he was aiming for them to do. We mentioned the importance of discipleship. And one of the definitions, it's not original with me, is intentionally equipping believers with the word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. Today we're going to look at a, a few differences in the mindset of a Hebraic worldview and our Western worldview that doesn't exactly align. Uh, you're going to be surprised in some ways, um, as I was, I was reading through many different commentators, read, uh, Jewish scholars, uh, Messianic rabbis, and it's mind-blowing how much we don't think the way they do. Um, So hopefully this morning it'll be uh, an eye-opener for you. And hopefully, you know, we as a church can align better to what God says rather than our Western thought that we try to read back into the Word of God. One must understand that the Orthodox Jewish mindset is quite different from the Hellenistic Western mindset, which most Christians align to today. In fact, here we're going to start off. One of the differences between Hellenistic thought and Hebraic thought is this. Hellenistic thought would emphasize a consistent, tight, systematic logic. We have to have everything step by step by step. It has to be perfectly lined up. Well, the Hebraic thought is fine with apparent contradictions and holding them both true at the same time. In fact, one commentator says this He says, We Westerners insist on rendering everything into logically consistent patterns, on systematizing it, on organizing it into tight, carefully reasoned theologies. We cannot live with inconsistency or contradiction. We feel compelled to think antithetically. The Godhead must be tightly defined and structured. We cannot live with the Hebraic idea that God is simply ineffable, too great to describe, and that God's book doesn't lend itself to systematization. Systemi- I can't even say the word. Today. Systemization. I'll try that one day later. I think this is one of the reasons why uh, we find it kind of difficult for us with the Western culture, when we get into our debates of free will and God's sovereignty or election, if you will, um, in fact, it's, it's, it's one of those topics that there's always a back and forth, there will always be a back and forth in the Western culture. He, Hebraic thought is perfectly fine with keeping both those thoughts at the same time. So you would ask the, the Jewish person, uh, did God choose you? Did you choose God? Yes. And that's how they would answer that question. Uh, Jewish people tend to think with two hands, learning to balance what seems to be contradictory ideas. As the New Testament writings show, Yeshua and the Apostles were firmly rooted in the Old Testament and lived in its world of images. Shortly after the death of the founder, however, the new religious community center of gravity shifted into the Greek-speaking Hellenistic world, which would be Jewish people influenced by Western thought. And after the year 80-70, when the temple was destroyed, the community was severed finally from its motherland, Christianity has been the religion of Europeans ever since. It is significant, however, that despite their absolute authority, the words of Yeshua were preserved by the church only in the Greek language. Not only are these two languages essentially different, but so too are the kinds of images and thinking involved in them. This distinction goes very deeply into the psychic life. The Jews themselves define their spiritual predisposition as anti-Hellenic. Once this point is properly understood, it must be granted completely." You have to understand that Jewish people don't think in any way like Westerners do. And until you understand that that truly is a huge difference, then you're, not, you're going to read certain passages of Scripture and not realize that there's a different meaning that they actually came from on that. And you're reading something else in. In fact, most of the debates in the church, it's interesting to note this, uh, Jewish people would avoid altogether. They just would avoid them, avoid them altogether. Uh, the afterlife and the particulars, it's for God to decide. Um, they, though they have debates on that, it's not a big emphasis of theirs. Uh, free will, predestination, how exactly God inspired the, uh, the writers who wrote the Bible. They just believe God did it, and that settles it. Um, Hellenistic thought, here's another one, is more focused on ideas, words, definitions, outlines, bullet points, list. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. Guess what I'm doing. Uh, Hebraic thought is more focused on symbols, pictures, stories, imagery, and poetry. To illustrate, if you were to ask a Western-thinking Christian what God is, what do you think the responses would be? What is God? Anybody? God is love. God is holy, right? that's that's, That's mostly the way Westerners think. Well, if you were to ask a Jewish student... The same question, they would respond, God is a strong tower, God is living water, God is warm bread. Do you see the difference? Do you see the different emphasis? The idea to the Jewish mind is to stir the emotions, not just blow the mind of a concept one finally understands. If you think of words, love, holy, omniscient, you're registering concepts. If you think of a rock, living water, bread, you sense the visual and how that stirs your emotions. In fact, if you're thirsty and someone brings up water in a sermon, what do you think you're going to be thinking of the whole sermon? Water. There's a reason why when Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman, guess what he does? He brings up living water. Pay attention. Those little things will start sticking out to you more, more when you understand where the Jewish people come from. To take it a step further, if you were to say that God is love, the Hebrew mindset would be more of a God who loves or a loving God. God's word was not just an idea or a concept, but something that was a moving force to the Jewish people. In fact, uh, one one text we're going to look at says, I have heard, and I want you to pay attention to some of the the language here. I have heard what prophets have said who prophesy, prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make my people forget... My name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbors. As their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The the prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Notice the description here. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord. And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Notice the descriptive language here. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says. Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. Notice the description of God's word. Fire. Notice the statement right after, "...and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces." That should visualize something for you. When you think of God's Word, there's a description. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to this text, Isaiah 55. This is, a, this is a chapter that I believe is quoted many times with just a snippet of it, but we're going to read the whole chapter. I think, I think reading a whole chapter sometimes gives you a full imagery Of what it is that God's trying to communicate. And I want you to think more like a Jewish person. Because you're going to start seeing things this morning. That maybe you've not seen before. And I'm hoping and praying that God does that. uh, With every one of us. Starting in verse number one. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk. "'without money and without price. "'Why do you spend money for what is not bread "'and your wages for what does not satisfy? "'Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, "'and let your soul delight itself in abundance. "'Incline your ear and come to me. "'Hear and your soul shall live, "'and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, "'the sure mercies of David. "'Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, "'a leader and a commander for the people. "'Surely you shall call a nation you do not know.' And the nations who do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Notice the imagery in this, this, this text of Scripture that Isaiah writes down for us. Look at all the comparisons. And see, most of us, we, we, uh, we come to um, this text right here. We, we, most of us know verses 8 and 9. And then we also know 11. Guess what we skipped? Verse 10, where he gives a description before he goes to that next section. For as the rain comes down, the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth. You notice all this descriptive language that I think sometimes we just miss. We miss because we're not reading it from their worldview, we're not reading it from their mindset. And what tends to happen is what, what the writer of Psalms does for us many times is he paints a picture for us. How many of you have memorized Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pasture, right? So there, there's, this, there's this emotion that's attached to that song. if you stopped and just paid attention. And many of us are moved by that psalm because we hear it at funerals. But I stress that there's more there than just reading it in a sentimental way when someone's passed from this life. There's comfort for the the person that's going through struggle today. Not just someone that's lost a loved one. And that's one of the things that's amazing is the next point is Hellenistic thought is to speak to the head first, then to the heart. Mind, then emotions. Hebraic thought is to speak to the heart first, then to the head. We miss out on so much of Scripture because we read most of our Old Testament from a Western mindset. Losing all the beautiful imagery that's painted for us to stir our hearts with affection for God. In fact, just for a moment, uh, certain, think, think of certain things that you uh, possess. Things that were passed on to you from your parents. How many of us have some heirloom, something that our parents have passed on to us that maybe their parents gave to them? I want you to think of that item, whatever that item is. Think think of what that item causes you to think about when you see it. When you go home and you pull it out, and you go, wow, my grandfather had this, or my mother gave this to me before she passed. Whatever that item or object is, I want you to realize that this is exactly how the Jewish mindset is. They take something and they want you to visually see what's going on. They want you to see the picture that's being drawn out for you. And as we see those things that are sentimental to us and we pass down to our children, I want to encourage you something with something, parents, that we're going to get into more uh, probably the next coming weeks. Uh, One of the things that I want to encourage you as a pastor of the church to do, if you have not done it in the past, to start doing it this year, is not only read the Word of God, but write some things down that God is sharing with you. Read and write some things down. Write some things that God is showing you and what you're reading in the Word of God. And, and one of the things that I'm going to especially encourage you is, is think of your life and what is it that God wants you specifically to do. You see, we, we, we have these generalities that we talk about in our churches all the time. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But what are we looking at specifically in our lives? How does God want me to apply that today? And that's one, where I really want you to, to consider that because here's, here's what's interesting. You don't need to be a Spurgeon... ...to pass a legacy down to your children. You don't. See, too many of us were... we're, ...we've bought into the lie that only the great men of faith... ...are going to leave an incredible legacy. Um, No. In fact, most of the disciples of Christ... ...are no names that left an amazing legacy. You have to realize somebody had to reach Spurgeon... you don't even know who that is. You don't even know who that is. A few might, because you might have read his biography... But what's incredible is somebody had to be faithful in the Word to pass something on to their children. One of the things that I think troubles us as a church constantly is that we're so bombarded and as Pastor Rizzo used to say all the time, distractions. We've got distractions all the time. But you have to make Jesus and disciple-making a priority for you to make sure that that gets done. Church, community, worship, Discipleship should not be optional, those should be priority. And sadly, what happens in the church many times is we take those things that God calls us to do and we make them optional that are commands. And the things that are optional, we say we have to do. Do we not do that? I have to do this. I have to do this tomorrow. Well, maybe instead of doing those things that aren't profitable for our soul, we take an extra 10-15 minutes and read the Word that day. Maybe if our team is down by more than three touchdowns, we shut off the TV and do some reading that day. Just being practical. I like football anymore just as much as the next guy. What happens is we waste our time on things that are empty and then wonder why God isn't moving in our lives. I want you to think more in terms of legacy when it comes to discipleship. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. You're not the termination point. Christ came not just for you to sit idly by and say, you know what, I've got an amazing gift. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. He wanted you to share that with someone else that is just as hopelessly lost as you were. Parents, what do you want to leave your kids? Be honest with yourself. How much of an account do you want to leave them with? Are you looking financially only? Or are you thinking spiritually? What do we want to leave our kids behind? Proverbs says you should store up for your children and your grandchildren. Absolutely, so that's, that's biblical. I'm not arguing that you shouldn't do that. But I'm going to ask, are you going to pass your faith down as Timothy's mother did or not? You may be arguing, but wait, isn't it important to not be controlled by emotions? We need to use our mind first, right? Uh, You just proved you think like a westerner. You just proved that by just thinking that way. Understand that for some of us, we use our emotions as the only thing, which is actually very deceptive. The heart is deceptive. Scripture is very clear on that. But you understand that when the Jewish mindset was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, it included both mind and emotions. Okay, It's not like mind and emotions are separate. Hopefully you can figure out how they all work together. No, it's together. In Judaism, there's a clear connection between study and action. Every Jew is commanded to set time aside for study of the Torah and other writings. Maybe this is why the church does not understand what it means to be a disciple. We simply connect it to a knowledge of facts that we know about Jesus. I know he died, I know he rose again, um, and I know I'm going to heaven. (laughs) Christianity in a nutshell, I'm good. And it doesn't move us beyond that. There's no emotion that propels us to go anywhere with that. Ask yourself, when was the last time you were stirred with such gratitude that you have salvation? When was the last time you read a passage of scripture that says, the Lord is my strong tower? And you were like, man, what an image. He is that strong tower. So how does this tie into being a disciple? You might be asking, well, how how does this all tie into being a disciple? Well, number one, to the Hebraic mind, one's deeds must follow one's word, else they are false, empty, and a counterfeit. This is why the Jewish people look at most Christians and say, you're frauds. What has your Jesus done for you? You don't live any different than your profession. I would argue that Jewish people are more committed, particularly the Orthodox Jewish people, are more committed to their faith than we are. Their people have more respect for spiritual authority than Christians do. Christians think everything is optional to the Jewish mindset, it has to be done. God commanded it. I have to do it. To the Hebraic mind, quality of one's life was more important than the knowledge one possesses. Don't tell me how much you know. Show me. Show me. Maybe be interesting to finally understand why the Pharisees drove home the point that they were living so well on the exterior, right? Everybody looked at them and said, wow, what an example. They were great. Look at how much they do for God. Look at how de- devoted they are. The exterior is all that man sees. Hence the deception that Jesus calls the Pharisees out for. Because to others they were impressive because they seemed to be walking with God quite well. So before we get to number three here, I want to ask you a question, and I sincerely have asked myself this question. If it's not about the exterior, why is that always what I'm worried about? If it's not about the exterior, why is it that I'm always worried about that? Could it be that we really live a lot of our Christian life for others' judgment? Could it be that we're just so concerned that our kids may see us slip up that we have to act a certain way just so they look, they see us being a pretty good person? Could it be that we're not going after the heart of the matter? We're only looking to have the exterior look a certain way because we have a standard that we're trying to keep so people think of us a certain way. Look, it's not only other people that can be Pharisees, you can be a Pharisee. Stop assuming everybody else is the Pharisee. We read the Bible and go, oh, that's not me. I know someone in church like that. <laughs> I wonder what you would be praying if you were the one that Jesus used the illustration about. Doesn't sound similar to the Pharisee's prayer, does it? Number three. To the Hebraic mind, faith was not only a mental assent, but rather continual action that followed in line with the confession. This is one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons this whole believe a prayer, uh, pray a prayer, believe on Jesus one time, and live like the world is antithetical to anything scripture ever portrays. Any Christian that believes that is believing a false doctrine. Paul reiterates that in Romans. You should not sin so grace abounds. God forbid. Many Christians have said they believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but to the Jewish mindset, pronouncing certain words without actions demonstrated makes that confession null and void. That is why the Jewish person, if they were to ask a Christian how much you read the Bible and they're more committed to the Torah, don't want your religion. It's false. You don't love Jesus. If you really love Jesus, why don't you want to read what he says? Why don't you want to hear from him? Oh, that's cute. You went to church on Sunday once a week. Wonderful. To the Jewish person, that's not commitment. Christians are proud of themselves that they went to church all, all year. When was the last time you had the devotion that a Jewish person had to their God? stop playing games with us. Well, we're going to stop analyzing how everybody else is poor in their performance and realize that God is concerned about us being disciples. We have a Jesus to follow. And the Jewish people reject him. And what makes us think we'd ever reach them if we don't even love the Jesus that we tell them about? You should be concerned why you are not following God's word, yet declaring you're a Christian. That should be a serious point of consideration for you. So, some people are still like, well, I get it. We think differently than they do on some things. But why does that really matter? Well, I want to prove to you something that's interesting. If you actually read uh, writings of Alexander the Great and some of the things that he implemented when he conquered nations, you're going to be blown away by what have... What things he influenced that culture with. And what's interesting is, as Alexander the Great did not, when he conquered a nation, destroy that whole culture. He didn't come in and just destroy everything. He actually let them exist with their religious system. But what he did is he introduced certain things that would then influence that culture that he had just conquered. So here are some of the things ways that you and I are influenced, um, even to, to this day. Alexander allowed Jewish people to not only practice the religion, but also introduced other options for them to enjoy. Number one, introduction of educational centers that taught religion, history, math, etc. So the Jewish people had their synagogue. Guess what Alexander the Great did? Set up his own. I want you to start processing, parents. See if some of this is still going on today or not. Okay? really not different. You know, Satan's been using the same strategies for a while. It's amazing how many Christians are in denial all the time. Here we go. That, they didn't prohibit the Torah from being read. They just introduced their gods as well. Oh, you love God? Sure, great. Well, here's, here's some other gods for you to consider. They encourage the, the Jewish people to keep learning and learn from them, to not be closed-minded. How many of you have ever heard that? Don't be closed-minded. Be open to other spiritualities. You don't need to be a Christian. You need to be spiritual. See how similar that is sometimes? It doesn't go away. Hence you have Hellenistic Jews later on. In fact, the Samaritan woman was already influenced by that. Number two. Set up athletic competitions that were foreign to the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't have their own Olympic Games, if you will. This became the basis for the Greek Olympic Games. In fact, Paul even uses the illustration of a runner, right? In fact, the duties of the priesthood were hindered because sometimes there weren't enough priests to live out, if you will, the word in the temple because they were out and distracted going to the Olympic Games. Look, you can research all this if you think think I'm off on this. It's, It's incredible what Alexander the Great did. He knew what he was doing. Number three, news, music, and art from other parts of the world. In and of itself, none of these things are bad, but what they ended up doing was influence the Jewish people to think differently than what God wanted them to think. And be more interested in other cultures and their practice of faith. See, in fact, if you, uh, if you were to read the Bible this year, you're going to see many ways that the Jewish people were influenced by outside countries that would conquer them. And hopefully you have enough discernment to know that could be me, maybe me, right now. These new ideas brought in other cultural practices that became an interest for the Jewish community, paving the way to Hellenistic thinking. And number four, theaters for comedy and tragedy plays. Theaters for comedy and tragedy plays. The layouts of the, of the theaters that they had back then, we still use today. Where people are on stage, they act out certain scenes. Um, in fact, Jesus even uses the term hypocrite, right? He even brings up the term that they're all familiar with at that time because they had already been influenced by that. An actor who pretends to be someone else by wearing a mask. So, you might be asking, well, how is, how is any of this relevant today? So, I want to be practical. We want to bring this to the 21st century with modern screens and everything. Okay? Uh, what are places of education uh, that may influence us to think differently? Do you think that that's a possibility in our culture at all? Or are we, are we kind of assuming that that's not going to happen? Instead of arguing, why don't you look at history and then argue with that? Okay? If you're like, ah, I don't agree with you, Pastor Roman. My family's better than that. That's great. That's fine. Look historically. See what happened. What about sports? Oh, no. Not the idol. Could it be that we're so enamored with sports that we're distracted from more pressing matters? Could it be that instead of memorizing stats, you memorize verses? That might be better for you. Who cares how many interceptions the quarterback had? What about news? No influence there? How many times does it have a much stronger influence on our personal life than the word does? I mean, I don't care where you get your news, Fox News, MSNBC. I mean, it still influences you. Right? I mean, you wake up, oh, great. Here we go again. The world's going to end today. (laughs) Calm down. Remember God's in control. Go read the Word. Get that to be in your heart so that you can then live with a proper perspective. You see, the reason why we have a wrong perspective is we're feeding ourselves in all the wrong sources. If you're telling your children to live like Christ, but you want to give them Disney, then you're not going to get the same thing. You're not. I mean, and assuming that they're the same thing, and then eventually they'll work some morals out through that one story, great, you may have someone that stole got in trouble in that Disney movie. I get it. Great. But if you don't bring it back to the Word and why it's improper to steal and why God commanded certain things, uh, then you're missing the point for them. What about other cultural influences through media? Are we not influenced by things we read, by searching on Google? Anybody ever read read an article? I don't know if you've ever been daring enough like I have. I've read articles that challenge my faith, and I can't believe this garbage exists. I can't believe it. If I stare at this too long, it's going to distract me. Look, Jesus is who he says he is. Take God at his word. Don't doubt. There's nothing greater out there, okay? There's nothing greater out there. There's not some hidden secret. God has revealed it to all mankind. I sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior. Are we influenced by music we listen to? Whether Christian or non Christian, because there's some garbage Christian music out there too. God didn't want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down. Oh, wonderful. We're thinking God is lonely now. Horrible theology. What about movies we can go pay to see? I think some go- movies are good. They're good for the heart, good for the soul to watch. I think they're good reminders. But maybe we have our misplacement on who our heroes are in the culture. Maybe we have our children look up to Iron Man or Batman or Superman. And there's Jesus they should be looking up to. Look, my kids have a Batman backpack in case you're thinking I'm judging that. I'm not. Okay? Okay? but I do tell them that Jesus is their ultimate hero, okay? Batman can't, can't do nothing, all right? He don't have a chance. He's going to get owned instantly. Last time I checked, Batman don't walk on water. He drowns. So, in conclusion, a couple questions for you, and I'm serious about this. Number one, are you a disciple of Jesus or just a false convert? It's a serious question to ask. I'm not thrilled to put that up on the screen. Are you a disciple of Jesus or just a false convert? Back to the verse we we read earlier. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. There has to be a denial of self. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, Notice the word daily is there. Like every day. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Another text actually said for the Gospels, too. Uh, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Look, there's no benefit if you don't have Christ. There's none. It's great that you're a nice person, but there's no benefit at the end if you don't have Christ. Have this honest dialogue between you and God. Am I a disciple? Am I following you? And number two, if you are a disciple of Jesus, are you loving the people in this church? Pointed question. Are you loving the people in this church? This is an area that God has had to break my heart on. Because I have to ask myself constantly, am I loving the people in this church? Or am I just saying that? Or just sounds good? Scripture says this in John 13, 34, and 35. And I believe this right here is the secret for our church growing right here, okay? It's not really that secret. Jesus made it pretty clear. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You want to see the church grow? Love people in this church. Don't go jumping to reach somebody outside the church and bring them in here. Love the people that are already here. And if you do that and I do that, guess what? People are going to want that. People are going to want to be a part of this fellowship. They're going to want to be a part of this community. And you know what? It's going to influence way more than you can imagine. This is not some magic trick. This is the word of God. And God promises, by this will all people know, all men know, that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how you know you're a follower of Jesus. In fact, 1 John has more on that. That's how you know you've passed from death to life, if you have a love for the brethren. So as we close this morning, ask yourself, am I a true disciple of Christ or my false convert? And number two, if I am a disciple, am I loving people in this church? It's easier to love people that you don't know well, right? Sometimes, oh yeah, that was a nice lady. <laughs> she yelled at her husband earlier, but <laughs> she's a great lady. She was a good server. You don't know that person well. We know each other a little better than that. So I think it's going to take some work sometimes to love one another the way we ought to. And with that, I just want to close with a prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another reminder from your word of the difference in the mindset of the Jewish mind and ours in the Western culture. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we see in your word that you ask us to follow Christ daily, to daily pick up the cross and follow, to be willing to endure hardship because we follow Christ. We ask this morning that you would give us a love for one another that we have not had as a church, that we would strive to be more like Christ in this area, that I would be a better example in this area, that we would, as a leadership team, grow to be more mature, and that we would reach our community here in Springfield. We thank you for the blessing of your word, and we ask that you would take it and apply it this week in our lives. In Jesus' name.